0: Good morning church. Glad to see you guys all here. Who remembers reading Where's Waldo books growing up? I had a couple of those and maybe they're not as big as I remember, but in my mind they were huge. They were as big as this pulpit, probably bigger. You'd open them up and they just cover your entire lap and the images is both sides of the page so the you know the picture is huge and it's filled with Hundreds, if not thousands of characters doing all of these silly and ridiculous things, and you're looking for that little red and white striped man called Waldo. And he was so hard to find, particularly in these really big books that I remember having. I'd, I'd look for hours. It seriously get to the point where it's like, okay, you know what? I think the artist forgot to put Waldo in here, and it's just a prank, honestly. He's not, he's not here. There's no way. The book of Esther that we are in today, the story of Esther, is kind of like the Where's Waldo of the Bible, if you will. It has the distinction of being the only book in all of Scripture that never mentions God, not even once. In fact, you could probably sell this book standalone on the New York Times bestseller list. It's an epic story. It's amazing. It's super exciting. I encourage you guys to read the whole thing. We're not going to be able to go through all of it today, but it's an epic story, and it's kind of seemingly non-religious. It just, it sort of reads like a history book if you don't read it closely. In fact, Martin Luther himself had problems with Esther being in the Bible because he claimed it had no gospel content and was aggressively Jewish, whatever that's supposed to mean. No disrespect to Mr. Luther, but I disagree. The author of Esther is very intentional in telling the story in such a way that the fingerprints of God are on every page. And the implications for our life today are vast and very relevant, but we need to look intently. I'm sure you've heard the phrase before, the devil is in the details. It's actually a misappropriation of a very old German proverb that was very common back in the 1800s that said, God is in the details. Which means, look closely, pay attention to the tiny details, because that's where the real stuff, that's where the truth, that's where the important stuff lies. So turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Esther, and let's play a game of Where's Waldo and find God in the details. Now, I'm not going to be able to do this story justice in its entirety. I beg and plead to take some time today or this week and read the whole story. It's riveting. It is such a good read. There are so many nuances and details I just cannot cover. You've got to read it. But we're going to cover as much as we can. So the story opens with King Ahasuerus, the king of Persia holding a massive banquet, celebrating his great power and riches. He's been parading these officials around for the last literally 180 days around his entire kingdom, showing off his greatness. And he culminates it with a seven-day feast. And on the last day of the feast, while he's absolutely smashed from wine, the king thinks, I've shown off my entire kingdom. I should show off my wife. She's super hot. I'm going to bring her in here in her birthday suit and show off the guys my wife as well. Why not? Queen Vashti sensibly declines. But the king is enraged at being disobeyed, kicks her to the curb, and then spruces up his Christian mingle profile to find a new queen. AKA, he rounds up all of the beautiful young virgins in the city of Susa, where his throne is, makes them go through a year-long spa treatment beautification process, and then sleeps with him one by one, looking for that special spark. Real gem of a guy. It's here that we are introduced to Esther, who is among the virgins gathered up in the king's harem for the contest, and her guardian Mordecai as well, which is her older cousin who adopted her as his daughter when her parents passed away. And we don't know the story of what happened, but that's, that's all we have. And Mordecai was also a court official for the king. So we'll pick up the story in chapter 2, starting in verse 12. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil and myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem. Now, it's not saying that, but there's really only one thing you do with the king if you go in in the evening and come out in the morning. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. Verse 15. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. That phrase, really important. If you read through this whole thing, that phrase is listed over and over and over again. Verse 16, And when Esther was taken to King Hashuarus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the other women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. So we see this phrase a couple times, even just this little section that we read, that everyone who saw Esther found favor with her. Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. God brought favor on Esther in the midst of having to submit to and sleep with a man, not her husband, essentially playing the role of a one-night stand for a deranged, crazy king who was just looking for a new thrill in bed, trying to satisfy that craving, that void somehow. And yet, when he encounters Esther... Now, we don't know when in the night. We don't know the fullness of what actually happened. More than likely, everything you think happened probably happened. But at some point in the night, the king... It says the king loved Esther more than all the other women. She won grace and favor. And the way that the author writes this so abruptly is on purpose. Usually the king would sleep with a bunch of them and then kind of sit back and think, okay, well, number 12, that was pretty good. Number 15, she was really cute. Number 17 made really good spaghetti. But instantaneously, the night's not even over yet and the king falls in love with Esther and shows that he deeply cares for her as a human being, not just as a plaything. And I'm sure she was beautiful, but the drastic reaction of the king to Esther's beauty is, I think, intentional by the author to show that there's something supernatural going on here in the way that Esther is being favored by everyone. I'm sure she's a wonderful gal, but I think the Lord's fingerprints are in the favor that Esther is receiving from every single person as deranged and disgusting as they may be. The king was looking for a plaything, but fell deeply in love. And we see that expressed throughout the rest of the story. Every time Esther approaches the king from here on out, he fawns over her and says, What do you want, my love? Ask for anything, up to the half of my kingdom. This guy's willing to give up almost anything for her. He cares for her so deeply. God used a sinful one-night stand to place Esther in a position to uphold his covenant to his people. I'm giving stuff away a little bit, but we're also not going to cover some portions of that in detail. Esther is now the queen of all of Persia, a massive... I mean, this was from North Africa to India and most of the southern part of that continent. Tons of land. Queen is, the queen is now basically second in command there. She is the only position of authority to later save the Jews from the plight that is yet to come and yet how did she get there sleeping with a man not her husband probably not really she didn't really have that much of a choice does that make you uncomfortable it makes me uncomfortable reading this i hadn't read esther in a while and when i got to that point i went wait a minute I mean, Esther's never even chastised in this for giving her virginity away and not being a stronger woman or, or saying no. I mean, she got to this position through means that break multiple commandments of God. And it seems like God is in the midst of it, giving her favor in the midst of these trials and these frustrating situations. We might sit back with 2020 vision and go, well, it's possible the right thing to do would have been to say no to the king, no matter what happens, even if she got executed. You should have said no, Esther. But somehow God seems to use it. I don't know if he's okay with it, but he's sure using it. And that makes me uncomfortable. And I honestly, I don't know if I have an answer for that. To deal with that discomfort, other than the fact that I know that Esther didn't have to clean up her act to be used by God. How many times do we feel that way? That guilt, this idea that we have to break that habitual sin or, or get our acts together together get clean before we can approach God. Or, or this idea that somehow God is only with us in the good stuff. When we're nailing it, God is right there, and it's his hand providing. And when we're failing, he's somehow stepped out of the room. we said it from the pulpit before, the Holy Spirit does not leave the room when you start sinning and then come back to cleanse you when you're done sinning. He's there the whole time, and that's really awkward. Yes, it should be. Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not because we got our act together. Not because we had potential. There was great things that God could see because he sees all past and future and goes, yep, that guy, I'm going to have him on my team. It doesn't work like that. If you think that God can't use broken people and doesn't work in the midst of our filth, then the only work that God ever did in the history of creation, besides creating it, is through the person of Jesus. And if you believe that, you should throw out the rest of this book. Because, honestly, this is 1,200 plus pages of God working in the midst of broken, disgusting people working his perfect will. This book is a testament to God's relentless pursuit of his glory and our good. I wonder if you have disqualified yourself somehow in the past or even right now from serving and pleasing God, past sin or shame, whether forced upon you from someone else's sin, someone else's brokenness, or your own poor choices. I want you to know there's good news. God's mercy and grace is so much deeper than we can possibly fathom. And I struggle with this. I've been wrestling with this for 15 plus years, ever since I started trying to make my faith my own and start reading scripture on my own. I can never get this nailed into my head, and I don't know why. It's probably because my grace and mercy runs out for myself, usually by the end of the day let alone the end of the week. So I think God's really, 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 really good. He can probably last a month with me. Maybe a year if I never miss a Sunday. It never runs out. Every single time you repent, he is there to say, it's forgiven. I love you. Please don't do that again, even though I know you will. And when you come back, there will be more. His cup never runs out. God is in the details. He works in the midst of our messiness. We don't taint him. He cleanses us. So the story continues on. Mordecai exposes a plot to assassinate the king, which seems like this really insignificant kind of like side note, the way that the text is written, but it's this amazing bit of foreshadowing. And then we're introduced to Haman, boo, the villain of the story who is for some reason promoted to second-in-command right after Mordecai saves the king's life. Mordecai's going, come on, are you kidding me? I literally save your life and you promote this other guy. And we, this is, these are some of the details that I don't have time to fully get into, but I'll just wet your whistle a little bit. When Haman is introduced, he's introduced as an Agagite. And all the Jews go, because <clears throat> when Mordecai is introduced the chapter before, he's introduced as a son of Kish. Kish is in the line of King Saul. If you go back 400 years to 1 Samuel, God commanded Saul to kill, wipe out, every single one of the Agagites from the face of the earth. And Saul fails to do so. He keeps the king alive and a few others, and some escape. And then he, you know, weasels his way around, explaining to Samuel why he didn't kill them. And so anybody who reads this story and hears how Mordecai is introduced and how Haman is introduced goes, whoa, battle 2.0. Saul versus the original Agai guides. Didn't happen. God's going to do it again. Mordecai and Haman. Tons of implications there. I'll let you dig through those when you read it later, because you seriously should. It's so good. Needless to say, Mordecai does not honor or acknowledge Haman's authority and is not that thrilled with Haman being second in command And doesn't really hide it, which infuriates Haman, and it fuels this death wish on him and the entire Jewish people, because he finds out that Mordecai is a Jew. and He goes, well, if I wipe out all the Jews, then I wipe out all my enemies, and everyone else loves me. So Haman devises this plan, and he comes up to the king, and he kind of shrewdly, you know, there's these people, they're really dangerous, but not so dangerous you should worry about them. Just, but, but if you just give the word and a little bit of money, and actually, he offers first to pay for it as well. You, literally, just say the word. You don't have to pay for it. You don't have to do anything. I'm going to do all the work. I'm just going to wipe these people out. The king goes, yeah, sounds good to me. Less work for me. And then Mordecai catches wind of this plan, realizes Esther's really in the only position to do anything about it, goes and warns her, and she bravely approaches the king, risking her life in the process, and then initiates this great plan that she has, invites Haman and the king to dinner laying out this carefully calculated plan to lull Haman's defenses and begin to expose the plot at a second dinner the next night. So Haman walks away from the first night gloating. He's already vain beyond, I'll get out. The queen invited the king and me out of all of the 127 provinces of Persia. He is riding high. And then on his way home, he runs into Mordecai. And everything goes out the window and he gets absolutely enraged again that there's one person in this kingdom, one small insignificant person in this kingdom who doesn't fawn over him and it just makes him blow a gasket. So he goes home and he's like, I don't care how amazing everything was that I just went through, or Mordecai's got to die. So Haman's wife encourages him to build a gallows 75 feet high. Weren't a lot of high-rises back then. This is, I mean, you would see this from everywhere in the city. And then to hang Mordecai on it before dinner the next night so that his second dinner isn't ruined and his mood can be maintained. If this is all you know up to this point in the story, things are looking grim. So let's step back into the text, chapter 6, my favorite chapter in this book. It's incredible. We're going to read the whole chapter because it's that good. But also read the whole book because it's that good. Chapter six, starting in verse one, on that night, the night after the first meal, the king could not sleep. He gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about big Thana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And Haman said to himself, Would the king delight to honor more than me? Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, Haman, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes of the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor. And let them lead him on a horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew. What? Are you joking me? Who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. Don't even try to change it. It's perfect. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, probably laughing. I would be. But Haman hurried to his house mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall. Verse 14. While they were yet talking with Haman, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther... Had prepared. Look at this incredible sequence of events. If Ahasuerus doesn't get insomnia that night, if he doesn't order the book of the Chronicles of Memoral Deeds to be read, if they don't turn to the page that has Mordecai's thwarting of the attempted assassination, if Haman hadn't just entered the court as he was reading that story, if the king didn't ask the question vaguely... What shall I do for the one whom the king delights in? Which caused Haman's huge ego and vanity to swell even more. Set him up for failure by making assumptions. If Haman suggested a quick gesture, I'd just give him half my kingdom. He's already been offering to Esther. Instead of a long parade through the entire city. And if the king's eunuchs didn't arrive while Haman and his wife and wise men were yet still talking and then hurried him off to Esther's feast, there would have been plenty of time for Haman to kill Mordecai before the dinner the next night. And who knows what would have happened in the story? If Esther finds out that Mordecai was killed before she's able to reveal the plot of Haman, I don't know if she would have had the strength to be able to go through with it. We don't know. All we know is that this is a sequence of at least seven, if you go all the way back to chapter 2, more like 12, 13, 14 events that had to happen in a specific way at the perfect time for this particular outcome. And then to cap it all off in chapter 7, Haman, or Esther reveals Haman's plot at the second dinner. The king is enraged and huffs off to the garden to pace around and decide what he's going to do about Haman. And then Right as he walks back into the room, because he's kind of gathered himself, Haman is pleading with Esther so violently and so physically, falling on her couch, please spare my life, that when the king walks in, he thinks that he's assaulting Esther. And he goes, you're going to even attack my wife in front of me, let alone her people? Away with him. And he's just trying to figure out what he's going to do with them. And one of the eunuchs is just kind of standing in the back, just attending the dinner, goes... Oh, by the way, um, this morning Haman built a 75-foot gallows at his house to hang Mordecai. King goes, perfect! Hang him on that! (laughs) I think we found God in the details again. God is in the details and nothing can stop him. And if that crazy sequence of, of events isn't enough to convince you, I want to look at Chapter 6, verse 13, my favorite verse in this entire book. Look at this. Haman's complaining to his wife. Then the wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, listen to this, if Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. What? This is the closest we get in Esther, I think, to acknowledging God directly and from the mouths of pagans, no less. The enemies of the Jews recognize that there is some greater power protecting him. I mean, they've probably heard the stories, the Red Sea, the number of times that there was, you know, 100 people or 300 people up against armies of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, and they just continue to have victory. The faithfulness of God to bring them back from captivity and from exile over and over again and reestablish them— I mean, this is, this is 400-ish, 450 BC. I mean, God has already been working with the Israelites for thousands of years, and the stories are vast by now. And the pagans realize without saying it directly that it seems clear that whoever has done all of that stuff is doing something again. The Jews are not impressive people at this point. They've been in captivity of Persia for at least 70 years, probably more like 100 years by this point. There is a small remnant that returned to Jerusalem, but Jerusalem is still well within the boundaries of the Persian Empire. They aren't building some secret army. They aren't creating some awesome secret weapons in the underground caves of Jerusalem. They're not impressive people, and they're not threatening people. And yet Haman's wife and his wise men say this, if Mordecai is of the Jews, you will not be able to overcome him. Is that because Mordecai is great? No. Even the pagans seem to know that God is unstoppable. How much more do we as believers on the other side of the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ who are now indwelt by the Holy Spirit have reason for confidence in the face of danger and trial? I want to read Romans chapter 8 verses 28 through 39. And we know that for those Who love God, all things work together for good, according to those, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God is doing it all. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37. No. Can critical race theory and gender identity politics being indoctrinated into our children in the schools and media separate us from the love of God? Can the outlawing of sharing the hope of Jesus to the LGBTQ community because it's considered conversion therapy, which is happening in Canada right now, they're writing laws about it, separate us from the love of God? Can being hated, canceled, arrested, kidnapped, abused, burned, or executed for our faith separate us? from the love of God. No, because God is working all things for his good, which as children of God is our good too. God is in the details and he cannot be stopped. So now the villain's defeated. Yay, Esther! But don't breathe a sigh of relief just yet because this edict that Haman wrote couldn't be revoked. It was signed with the king's signature and sealed with the king's signet ring. And so it was going to happen. The day was coming when the enemies were allowed by law to destroy the Jews. So Mordecai and Esther have to come up with a plan, some way to counter it. So they basically write a one-day Second Amendment, essentially, that on that day, the Jews are allowed to take up arms and defend themselves. So we'll jump back there into the text, chapter 9, verse 1. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same. When the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, listen, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them. For the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews for fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. And skip to verse 11. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa the citadel the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. Verse 13. And Esther said, if it pleases the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. Uh, Hold on a minute. Haman's original decree only allowed for the destruction of the Jews on one day. 24-hour period. That's it. What do you call taking up arms against somebody who is actively attacking you? Self-defense. What do you call taking up arms against someone who is no longer legally allowed to harm you? Vengeance. Suddenly, sweet little Esther reveals a dark side. That was kind of fun, conquering our enemies. I've got power. Let's do it again. Let's make sure that those enemies can't touch us again. And then to celebrate this victory, they inaugurate this feast called Purim, which is not commanded by God. It's the only feast in all of the Jewish calendar that's not commanded by God as an act of worship to God and acknowledgement of what he has done for the people. It's to remember the heroism of Esther and Mordecai. There's no mention of God in it at all. And and that kind of bothers me. It's also traditionally one of the most joyful and highly energetically celebrated of all the feasts. And it's the only one that's not about God. And then look at chapter 10, the very end. It's very short, but if you have titles in your Bibles on the chapters, it'll say something like the greatness of Mordecai. And it's basically just The end chapter is just basically praising Mordecai for how amazing he is and how powerful he is and what a good thing he did and how strong he is and the amazing position of authority he now has and what a massive victory this was for the Jewish people. Where's God in the details there? Well, that's just it. He's been there the whole time. Please read this whole book. It's so good. You'll see it. Every little detail of this story, from beginning to end, is thick with the hand of God. And then he's just never acknowledged. In fact, if anybody acknowledges him, it's the pagan. Now we get to the part that exists in almost every single story in the Old Testament. I hope you guys are starting to see this pattern of the redemptive narrative in Scripture. I think the entire Old Testament can be summed up and boiled down to one statement. You need a better Savior. God can and does use broken people for good in this world to alleviate the symptoms of captivity to sin and brokenness. But salvation of the soul from the eternal captivity of sin and death only comes by and through God himself. I'm going to say that again. God does use broken people for good in this world. He does. Absolutely, he wants to alleviate the symptoms of our captivity and our sin and our brokenness, for sure. The salvation of the soul from the eternal captivity of sin and death only comes by and through God himself. He is our only lasting hope. We might say God is in the details working out these minor victories and temporary fixes, and I think he is. He's working out this plan of salvation that culminates in Christ coming, dying on the cross, and raising again. But 400 years from now, in the story of Esther, it's just going to be the Roman Empire instead of the Persian Empire oppressing the Jews. In fact, it kind of blows my mind that when Jesus arrives, the Pharisees are still thinking that the Messiah is going to come as a conquering king to conquer the Romans. Have they not read Esther? Have they not read the entire Old Testament? Has a king ever, everlastingly saved the people of Israel? No. 80 years, 100 years, tops, maybe? If he was a really good king, that's like David at most. It never lasts. The fact they still cling to this idea that they're going to conquer the people on this earth who are oppressing them. The the tangible people. What What did Romans 8 say? We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We do not wrestle against the Romans. We do not wrestle against the Persians. We do not wrestle against people with different ideologies than us. We wrestle against principalities, powers, darkness, demons, Satan himself. And the war is already won. God is in the details, and he and only he can work out perfect salvation. Likely the most famous line in the whole book of Esther, it's probably the one that you share on Facebook and the one that's knitted on pillows, is actually kind of sad. And yet we quote it in bravery of what Esther did, in awe of that bravery. And I don't mean to belittle her bravery. We should all have that kind of conviction in the face of fear, in the face of persecution, to do the right thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. But listen, the end of chapter 4, verse 16, Esther says to Mordecai after being finally convinced she needs to do this, then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. That sounds brave, doesn't it? If I perish, I perish. I don't value my life. What is it really, though? It's failure. If she dies, she's dead. She's the only hope for Israel, and if she dies, she's dead. What does Jesus say? When I perish, it is finished. God himself provides the perfect hero, the perfect savior, to thwart the plans of the enemy. Yes, God uses people like Esther and Mordecai. Absolutely. And their bravery should be admired and exemplified. Don't hear me trying to bash them. But you don't praise the chess pieces for being on the right square at the right time in a game of chess. All glory and praise for every tiny victory in this life belongs to God alone. I want to close with a few thoughts. God is in the details. He's there in our messiness. So be faithful in the small things. You may not have a position of power like Esther or Mordecai to feel like you can make a big difference. But if nothing else, the book of Esther teaches us that God is in all of the little details, every mundane little thing, every part of your day, every messy little bit in the midst of you struggling with sin and temptation. So be faithful to do everything, whether dishes or laundry or dealing with temper tantrums or maintaining integrity in your work under a terrible boss. Do everything unto the Lord, faithful in the small things. God is in the details Nothing can stop him. So do not fear the big things. Nothing surprises God. There's not a single headline that goes across any sort of tabloid that makes God go, Whoa, I, didn't see the, I didn't know the devil was going to do that. I don't have a plan for that. you kidding me? There's no threat against his children. He doesn't already have an answer for. Ready to go. His hand's in his pocket. Ready. What's the devil going to do this time? Boom. Got an answer for it. So let's stop reading the headlines in fear. I know things are getting iffy in America for the conservative evangelical. Let's not read the headlines with fear, but rather with anticipation, waiting to see how the creative glory of God is going to manifest itself this time. Caveat, it might not be in your political rights or you being actually physically saved. But who cares? We're going to heaven. We're going to be with him for all of eternity. Who cares what happens in this life? Don't be even fear. God is in the details, so give God the glory in everything. If God is in the details, and I believe since God is in the details, we have no reason to brag or boast. Ephesians 2.10 says, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That means anything you do in this life, great or small, for the kingdom was prepared beforehand by God. You have no grounds for boasting. So whether you're leading thousands to Christ in some great Billy Graham crusade or holding infants in the nursery so a tired mama can have her soul fed, everything was prepared beforehand by God. So let's give God the glory in everything that we do.